again. I like that. Good to be lively on the day of the Lord in the time of celebrating Christ's birth. We're going to do one more Ten Commandment message and then we'll do a uh, we'll do a Christmas message starting next week. So um, we'll continue what we've been doing the past few weeks in uh, this study in Exodus 20 and doing one commandment at a time. And we've seen so far, and I think we recognize that uh, that command that's put forth usually in basically one sentence and very shortened sentence uh, very much of the time, there's much more than what really meets the eye when we see that there. I mean, it's very clear and very understandable, and uh, that's what it's meant to be. But it develops into something much more. And and all the commandments we see really, they demand absolute perfection. And we know they're deeper and broader than we can even imagine. Even what we talk about here, it, it uh, goes much more than what we realize. But it's, we see that it's not just enough to obey the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. There were uh, many people at the time that Christ came to earth that were following the letter of the law, so they thought. But Christ straightened them out on what they were doing. That they really didn't have the spirit of the law there. And uh, it really showed that they were not following those commands. So anyway, the seventh commandment is our uh, subject today. And it's dealing with, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we've heard this all of our lives. Most people have heard that. But this commandment, like oh so many others, and they're all tied together. You can't separate one from another. And, of course, when we uh, address this issue, there might be some say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not married, uh, I'm too young, or I'm too old, or <laughs> whatever. But we'll see there's much more to this than we can really uh, imagine. Uh to show you how much this affects every other command, just think about the next command, which talks about stealing. Don't steal. Well, when one commits adultery, in, in the way that we're thinking of here, this straight out of adultery, there actually is stealing involved. It's stealing the spouse of another, something that belongs to somebody else. Matter of fact, it's also murder because the other spouses are being cheated on. So we saw last week what murder was. It goes much more than just killing somebody physically, but it can kill them by abusing them in in ways. And here uh, definitely would be, uh, in a sense, a murder and stealing. How about lying? Not bearing false witness as uh, a command will later say, as we'll study that well to cheat and deceive the uh, other partner is is uh, is lying and then coveting coveting a, a neighbor's wife that's warning the uh, wanting the spouse of another and then you can think of the breaking of the first three commandments having no other gods before him he's the only god uh, we think uh, no no idols uh, 
And, you know, you, you think about how that offends a holy God. So it just affects all of them. And all the law is broken whenever we break one. And so we are taking God's name in vain when we do that. We don't honor Him. We have idols in front of Him. So there's so many things involved in this. And it's so serious, the seventh command. It's so serious, but today it's taken so lightly, isn't it? It seems to be the norm in our society today. And just to give you a few statistics, out of the married men today, over half of them have committed adultery. That's what the statistics say. That's incredible. And a third of the women have committed adultery, they say. It's a, I believe it's such a common act that people expect this to happen. It seems to be what society is about. Just don't get caught. And I don't think the church today is the light and the salt that it needs to be on pronouncing what adultery is. We need to be the salt. But yet, we're not salty. We're tasteless and we're a dim light. We're not putting that forth. Uh, This issue, I think as far as adultery is concerned, has come full bloom that started developing back in the 60s and the 70s. And of course, it's always been here. We know that. But in our society, to be up front and big as it is today, uh, we know that that sexual revolution had a lot to do with it. And it seems virtually it's gotten out of control. It seems like it is, is much further beyond what we can even imagine. So what does God's Word have to say on this commandment other than you shall not commit adultery? So we'll look at that. We'll look at this command. It's straightforward and we automatically think, okay, how do we define this? Well, first of all, it's uh, to, the, to the Jewish people there, it was um, anybody in a married relationship that would have sexual relations with another outside the marriage. And that would be adultery. And that's what we would think of today. Uh, we will explain this further and shows that it goes much further than, than that. But he says there is to be no adultery. Understood? Clear forth, right? I don't think anybody has any trouble understanding that. The sacred union that marriage has is to never be broken by anyone. That's what God had set forth. Marriage was ordained by God. He gives us instructions on how we're to operate in that relationship. So it's certainly for our own good whenever he says, don't commit adultery because I don't want you to have fun. <laughs> he wants us to enjoy all the things that he has given us in, in the right way. So, And everything that he says, we know it is for our own good. But a lot of times in, in certain other things that whatever it is, you know, sometimes we tend to think that, no, I, I have some better ideas. But anyway, we're going to look at some... Uh, verses that are going to follow here to show what God has said first of all on the very foundation we're speaking of the foundation God laid down a foundation for everything else to be built upon and uh, we'll go all the way back to Genesis 1 have you noticed these commands 
even though they're mentioned here to the nation of Israel, go back to a foundation of the book of Genesis. They've already been set forth, maybe not in a written word like it's being put forth to this nation, but it was to all people. And that's why in the laws all across not only our land, but in nations throughout the whole world, they basically have these same kind of commands that we do. Have you ever noticed that? It's in their law. And it's protect the people, of course. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there it is, male, female, going to be brought together and to be fruitful, multiply, uh, subdue this earth, you know, uh, you have command over it, take control. Um, this is the kind of thing that uh, was made before uh, the fall of man. God had a great plan there. Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so there's the, the union, the bond that is made. So there's the foundation that is set forth. We go over into uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, starting at verse 6. And here Jesus Himself is commenting on marriage as uh, He's been asked a question. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote to you this precept. Here's verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, this is just what we read earlier, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let nobody take that separation that, or, uh, or bring on separation between those two people. So we see it in Genesis. Then we see Jesus commenting on that, quoting right out of Genesis. Jesus is the Word. And so therefore, He puts forth the Word. And this is the very bread that we live on. Now that is very, very profound because in our society today, we've seen what has happened. It's been a breaking of that kind of foundation even more and more and it's crumbled and crumbled and we've seen other things that have happened with the family and as we talked about murder you have murder within families kids killing parents parents killing kids kids killing kids it uh, is uh, just out of control It's, it's gone further than we could have imagined ten years ago but this is what God had said now it is shown that there are many warnings that we are to take heed to in the book of Proverbs. And if you turn to Proverbs chapter chapter 5, we'll see what kind of wisdom that God gives us here in how to live the Christian life. Proverbs is an excellent book for anybody. This is living it out. 
And it's, it's the norm. It's the way that it, it should be. It's the way that it's supposed to be. And through the power of God's Word and His Spirit, we can, we can do that. Um, as we speak on adultery, adultery stabs like a knife of the covenant between man and God. It stabs him. Between God and His people, a covenant has been made. And it stabs between a husband and a wife. And it strikes right at the heart of trust and love. We see all the movies, you know, about about this going on. Or if you look at, or if you see any of the shows on TV, I mean, it goes on and on. That just that shows the norm. You never see a a family of a husband and wife and kids together living in a house like you used to. Well, they're showing what reality is. That's kind of the way it's developed. What has happened in many of those is where there has been this commandment broken. It rips up the family. How can we trust each other in society if two people cannot trust each other? And so one thing like this comes into it, like, and there are many other things, but it breaks up the trust. So how can we trust anything else? How can we trust anybody in business? How can we trust anybody in politics? Life in general. If two people can't do it, and they're proving right now that, that, that they can't. I think Christians can. We do have that power. But it, I think it's an attack on the very priority of society itself. This, this whole family foundation thing. If it's broken up, so goes the culture. Can you see it before your eyes? Can you see the culture breaking up because the family is broken up? And it's not politically correct, really, to think about husband and wife being the only kind of relationship. It's man and man, or woman and woman, and then um, surrogates, and and they bring in children and adopt them. I mean, how, how far away has it gotten from God's beautiful design? Adultery uh, totally uh, ruins uh, the design that God had planned. Destroys so much. Look in Proverbs five. My, this is a whole chapter here, but this says so much. And Proverbs need to be read by children every day, because one of these days you're going to force be into a situation where you don't want to be forced into. And if you hang on to these kind of truths, let's start at verse one. Let's just read it, my son. Pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding, that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your ears to the years to the cruel one, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed, and say, How I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. 
I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Look at these instructions. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths His own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Boy, is that ever wise? (laughs) Right from God's mouth. If only people could follow this, can you imagine what a family could be like? Now, look in chapter 6. I'm not going to read the whole chapter here. But look at verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp. It's talking about the Word of God. It's a light. It's a lamp. And the law, light, reproofs of instruction are the way of life. God wants to reprove us by His Word. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Lot of straightforward wisdom. Oh boy, if we could get this news to people, right? Boy, is this politically incorrect? But it's correct. Now it talks about the evil woman and seducing the men. Well, we know that the other way can happen too. The men can act like they have something to offer and they have one thing in mind. Adultery makes, I think, humans look like animals fueled by the lust. Drunken people who wake up the next morning with somebody they don't even know. It's the kind of practice that's going on. It's glamorized by Hollywood, the movies, the books, the television, the magazines, and one can almost think, well, maybe that is the right way. You know, that's all I see, and it seems like they're really having a good time and fun. When you find out what's happening, just what we read in Proverbs happens to these people, and they're very sad people who live that kind of lifestyle. They're looking for the next day to get satisfied. The next woman, the next man, whatever it is. They don't know the truth. Big story right now in the news is Tiger Woods. Probably the greatest golfer that's ever played the game. I don't think there's any match to him. And now we hear about all of his adulterous relationships. You can't turn on the television or some kind of news without hearing something about him, or the late night talk shows as they make fun of him and such. The world is really kind of inconsistent, isn't it? On, in one sense, the world saying, do whatever you want, it's okay. 
You know, that's, that's an okay thing to do. So the world is practicing this very same sin, but when one is caught in it, then they bring it out and, and show the, uh, how horrible and terrible it actually really is. Those very same people who are doing the same thing that he is are pointing the finger and speaking out loudly against him. I find it fascinating that the world is telling on itself every day. Just watch the news. They have nothing but bad news and they're telling it on themselves. They're not telling it on us. They're telling it on the world. So it's kind of interesting how they do that. It's, to me, it's a hypocrisy. And yet they call many Christians hypocrites. But yet there they are doing that. Well, there's an example. Now, that was an extra-biblical example, but you think of Scripture. And I'll tell you what, if the Bible was a movie, it'd be X-rated. There are a lot of things in here that we read that I, I wouldn't want to show my sons. But yet it's in the Scripture, and so should we avoid it. This is uh, this is a warning to the young as well as all the ones all the way up through uh, adulthood. So the time that Christ comes back, and, and we'll see how this affects all of us. David had a sin with Bathsheba, and there was a lot of repercussion that came out of that. There always is. There always will be. It's never you go on to one relationship and uh, then another one, another one, and not have some kind of repercussion. David was miserable For the next year, his body wasted away. He was a wretch. And he was relieved by it. Actually, when the prophet Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. He was saying, you are the man who sinned. You need to confess that. He was confronted with his sin right up front. David then confessed his sin and we find that confession in Psalm 51. But for a whole year, his unconfessed sin ate him up. Literally, literally, physically, spiritually, in every way you can imagine. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. After the sin had happened, and a year later, the prophet Nathan comes to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. Oh, It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. It was part of the family. The one little lamb, that's the only thing this poor man owned and the family. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Ugh. What a story, right? Anybody should be outraged at this. David sure is. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. 
And he shall restore fourfold for the Lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more! Exclamation point. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with his sword. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel before the Son. That's when David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Wow. Miserable. Especially when he sees that his sin is brought up. By the way, it did uh, reap havoc, didn't it? Going back to the present news, Tiger Woods has had to cancel all of his PGA upcoming tournaments indefinitely. This is the one that everybody just waits to see. His sins has caused so much grief, now not only for himself, his wife, all the people around him, all his fans throughout the world, all the golfers in the PGA as they're being interviewed and they're telling how terrible it is. I wish somebody would give him the good news. Give him bad news. He needs to know the Lord. But this is going to stick with him the rest of his life. Whether he became a Christian or not, that's going to be there. And it uh, will be bantered about for quite some time. What about David? Well, it not only affected him, not only affected him, but affected Bathsheba. Her husband was killed because of that. Their baby son died. The whole nation of Israel was affected. They lost respect for him as well as they should. There was turmoil in David's family. You think of Absalom. Absalom then took control and became king for a little bit. This sin stuck with David for the rest of his life. And here it is. How much longer is this? What's it? 3,000 years later and we're still talking about it. And this was a, a godly man. It was a blot on a good reputation. Adultery is such a serious sin. First of all, it's a sin against God. David said, Thee only have I sinned against. But also it's a sin against our bodies. It's a sin against the spouses. It's a sin against that other person. All the immediate people involved who knows them, family. It can be, a matter of fact, it even affects the commandment of honoring thy father and mother. Because they didn't honor their father and mother. And now they kind of are in on this too. 
friends. It affects them. It affects co-workers. I mean, how many people does it affect? Well, depending on who you are and how many people know you and, and you know them, it affects. One act can do that. It brings so much misery for so many people. In our own country, we had a president caught in a shameful situation. If you guys remember, that thing was kind of tucked underneath the, the floor mat afterwards. But if you remember, this was brought out in the media daily. It was actually brought in, in hearings. And they would report on that. It was brought to the attention of everyone in the nation. Children had to hear about such a shameful act that the President of the United States did. Society knows it's morally wrong. They know it. They can't go around saying it's the perfect thing to do. Although sometimes they do. All Everybody knew that the president actually committed adultery. Women knew that. They knew that that was adultery, no matter what he termed it as. You know, he had all sorts of different names for it, and it wasn't, wasn't sex and such. You remember that. But society condones this kind of stuff. It tolerates it, even encourages it, and then they blast it. <laughs> so inconsistent. But even worse, as I said earlier, the church is very lax on the discipline. It tolerates this kind of thing that is going on. It's such a horrific sin, and they don't call it for what it is. There are patterns of adultery known by congregations and they're never confronted by it whatsoever. They let it go on. Nobody mentions anything. The church accepts the breaking of a covenant. It ruins the witness to the covenant of the church and the salvation and such as they let such a thing go on and on and on. The chain of it is affected so much. Now, we've looked at the negative. You've noticed in, in the commandments we see that don't do this, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Well, there is the positive, and it tells us what to do also, in that the positive holds up and preserves marriage. There is grace in this, where you have people in a sacred union. This commandment is found in the very creation of society. Found in Genesis. There was to be an honoring of marriage. Even people that are not believers, God still gives a, a marriage union to them. He can unite them together. They may not be marrying for the right reason. There's really one reason to get married. Really one. If it doesn't start with that, there, there shouldn't be a marriage. And you know what that is, don't you? It's to glorify God. <laughs> If they're not getting married to do that, then I would say, don't even think about it. You just need to cut it off right now. Because if that's not the reason, then this is, is useless. Because everything that we do is to glorify God. Sacredness of marriage, though, and the purity of it. Look in Ephesians 5. We see how sacred it is. verse 30 for we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones and for this reason right out of Genesis a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife 
and the two shall become one flesh. Well, what is it, Paul? This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there set forth, it's about the mystery and it gives us a view of really what Christ does for the church. So marriage, for one reason, it shows what how beautiful it is for the, the bride of Christ to be united to Christ. And we're learning that in that kind of mode. Hebrews 13. That's deep, isn't it? As Paul shared that. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all. So don't ever let anybody tell you that marriage is, is, a, is a done thing. And people are going around today saying, friends benefits. Have you guys ever heard that expression? You don't have to get married, or that's fine, but you need to have other friends and you can get benefits off them. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, the fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So we see the beauty of the other side of it, though what God has put forth in marriage. Now, that's part one. Let's go to the extension. What else does this commandment mean? Because we've seen how all the other ones have had a broad thought of what they, what they mean. Jesus spoke of inward desires. The Hebrew people especially the Pharisees at the time of Christ, we're not thinking inwardly. As long as you do the outward thing, it doesn't matter what's happening on the inside and what you're thinking, but it's what you do, and that's what counts. Well, the heart can be corrupt, and it spews out defiling things. If one does not know the Lord, that's what comes out. It's defiling things. If you know the Lord, we can still spew out terrible things, can't we? What's in the heart starts there and then it goes to the external act so sin is not just the act itself it's when one has thought on that and put their mind on that go to Mark 7 verse 21 so here it's speaking of the heart and this is where this extends to all of us Mark 7 21 for from within Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. We know about the depravity of man. And that's the kind of stuff that man has, even though we may not ever see those things. Some people can look so good. If they don't know the Lord, they are totally corrupt on the inside. We who are Christians have a new man. He's not corrupt. Well, what is corrupt then? Our flesh. Romans 6 says that we are to, um, to do something with that flesh. We're to mortify the things of the flesh. The flesh wants to do things opposite of what the Spirit is dealing with. 
So this extends out to that. It's an affront to a holy God. And He knows what's in our hearts. And that's where it starts getting a little difficult now. The Lord takes this command and He makes it so high that no person can follow any of these commands. You can say, well, I never committed adultery and I never will. Well, it could be true on the physical act. But, it can start here. And, and this is the thing that, that we, we deal with. Jesus raised the bar so high whenever He taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. And it was always there because the Lord was always looking for people to worship Him in truth. That it would really come from the heart rather than just the sacrifices. Those sacrifices to Him were a stench if it didn't come from a right heart. So we go to Matthew, Matthew 5. And this famous verse, you have, served, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Where did that come from? Exodus 20, our, our commandment that we're dealing with. Now he says, I'm going to tell you what it means. Much more depth here than what you think it is, he's saying. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if we even think about it, it's one thing to look at somebody, but then to, to start dwelling on that and then thinking about it, then he's saying that we've done that. He, he says to plan adultery is to commit adultery. It's now going into the heart and the inclinations. It, uh, it stands against adultery with our eyes, with our brains, our imagination, all of those things. Jesus gave us a high standard, didn't He? And we know that we have failed. We can't imagine uh, things, He says. We can't lust. And if we do, it's the same as adultery. You can say, well then, okay, if I've thought of it, then I can go ahead and do it because I might as well because I've already sinned. Now, some people have said that before. Now, can you imagine that? Well, there is a difference. Yeah, sin is sin. And that's true. But to carry that on out, we know what the consequences are. So if one has thought about it, then what they need to do is confess that sin and then move on. God's grace is amazing. But don't carry that on um, through because we've seen what it does to David or a Tiger Woods or anybody else for that matter. The essence is the same though. Jesus is saying it's sinful to have an adulterous thought. Boy, that really really hits there. How in danger could we all be, right? Of committing that sin. Now we get into spiritual adultery which is what we see throughout all the Old Testament. God uses this kind of language, this adultery, where there hasn't been a husband and wife having uh, adulterous relationships. It's talking about Israel. Israel so often played a harlot. Now, why would he say that? Why would he call them harlots? What's going on here? Uh, spiritual adultery really was the prime sin of Israel because it involves idolatry. You know, see what we're talking about here. They had other gods 
They had the true God. They had other gods. And so they manifested their sinful hearts. So we go to Jeremiah, one of the most famous ones, but it's all throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 3, the first three verses. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you, here we go, have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see where have you not lain with men. By the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. He's not necessarily talking about the literal physical act even though that could have been happening with individuals but he's talking about they've gone after other gods verse 6 the Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king have you seen what backsliding Israel has done she has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and there played the harlot got into idol worship and I said after she had done all these things return to me but she did not return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear but went and played the harlot also so it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. The nation of Israel committing adultery. Ezekiel 23. I'm not going to read all that. Same kind of thing happening there. Hosea. You know the book of Hosea. The whole book is about that. And Hosea is commanded by God to go out and marry this woman who actually is a harlot. And he has children by her and then she leaves and commits her terrible, treacherous sin and Hosea goes out and gets her and brings her back to him. A beautiful story of who? Jesus Christ. And he told literally Hosea to do that. To marry this woman who is going to be a harlot. Who is a harlot. And then... I want it to show and reflect upon who Christ is, really, is what it comes down to. What a story. We were the harlot. And He came and wooed us to Him. He called us into His kingdom and brought us forth into Him when we were out there doing our own thing. Amazing, isn't it? That God would do that. It really is. So why is sexual adultery, such as harlotry here, brought into these prophecy passages? Why is it the backdrop of spiritual adultery? What is it? Well, the answer is that we can easily understand spiritual adultery. When we look at what happens in sexual adultery, the covenant breaker in the marriage violates the sacred covenant by inviting someone outside the covenant into that relationship. It's someone who does not belong, one who has no rights 
to what the adulterer would give. No rights to that. And that's what God is doing, taking the physical relationship and showing what happens spiritually. God gives us this this picture of sexual adultery so that we would understand spiritual adultery. We see the woes and terrible consequences that can happen. And we see it all throughout the Bible. And in spiritual adultery, people forsake their Creator. They forsake Him. They deny Him His rights that He has over them. Spiritual adultery is not just about other people. It speaks to all of us. Because really, the moment we have sinned, you know what we have just done? I don't care what kind of sin it is. If we have sinned, we have just committed an adulterous act to the Lord. That's how we break this command. Even though we wouldn't have anything in our own thoughts about having an adulterous relationship with somebody else, when we do things on our own, we are doing the spiritual adultery. That's what Israel was doing, bringing idols into their, their lifestyle. Pagan worship practices that they had. The church is considered to be the very bride of Christ. But the church sometimes plays the harlot like Israel. People in the church sometimes look for extra-biblical revelation. Something that's outside the Scripture. Looking for really cool things that are happening. And they commit adultery. Spiritually. Because rather than going by the pure Word of God, they go upon the teachings of men and philosophies and other false teachings that are out there and that's spiritual adultery. How many people have come out of that kind of stuff, right? Spiritual adultery. They're they're just not satisfied with the revelation of the Word of God. They bring out things that are foreign to the Word of God. We want to stick with this right here. If it doesn't line up with this truth, you should say, show me that in Scripture. Where did you get that? Right? God has given us His Word. People sometimes are not content with God. Just like in family relationships, people are not content in that relationship so they go outside the family. They turn to other things. Turn our attention away from God. We can be spiritual adulterers. We all are. We're guilty. I'm guilty. What do we do about this then? If that's the case, I don't want to. I don't want to be a spiritual adulterer. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? Do you want to be called a spiritual adulterer? I hope not. We don't want that at all. We should hate that. So this is how this commandment applies to all of us. First of all, it means to mortify. And you know what mortification is? Sounds like a rock group, doesn't it? There was a Christian group called Mortification. It means to kill. It means to cut off. It means to choke. To starve to death. It means to kill. (laughs) Kill it. When sin comes up to you, tempting with beautiful look, and it sounds right, it feels right, but it's wrong, kill it. Starve it. Stop it. It's so serious that if you were to look in Leviticus 20, verse 10, the very act of adultery physically meant what? 
death. Leviticus 20, verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Can you imagine if that was applied today? Well, if I said half, well, half the men who are married would be gone. It would be a small world indeed. God doesn't apply that particular law. The adulterous law is still in effect. But some of these things that are part of the law by His grace were not tied to, but yet God still has the same look at it as He always has. We live in a, in a nation that doesn't do that. Uh, thank the Lord. But at the same time, how are we to deal with just sin? Colossians 3, verse 5 says, therefore, put to death or mortify what? Your members. That's your flesh. Everything in dealing with your flesh. Which are on the earth. For, you know, notice what he starts with? Fornication. See, they had the problem back then too. <laughs> really? Uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walk when you live uh, in them. Now, if someone practices these things and that's a constant, ongoing way of life, God says His wrath is going to come upon those sons of disobedience. If that's a practice, if that's a way of life. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, He says, if anything comes in your way, if anything, cut, cut off your arm, right? Cut off your leg. Um, what does he say there in Matthew 5, verse 29? Sermon on the Mount. There he's talking about it. Even if you think these thoughts, when 29 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it's more profitable for that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I'm not going to take the time. I don't think that uh, we really literally would say, well, that's what I need to do. I'm going to, I've got to take my eye out. Or have people done that? We're not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. But He is saying whatever it is where you have sin problems with, and you know what it is, what are you supposed to do? Do whatever it takes to where you don't get tempted. Whatever drastic measure it is, don't be physically torturing yourself, but whatever it is, I mean, we are to choke the very life of sin. Don't be around it. If you know that you're tempted or a situation where peer pressure comes on you, then just don't be there. Just don't even be there. We are to hack it to pieces. You heard of that in the Old Testament? What is that? Hack it to pieces. That's one thing. Mortify it. Cut it off. Don't let it happen. If you know that's your problem, okay. You have a problem with um, things on television? Shut it off. Turn the channel. Put on a good Christian CD. Start praising the Lord. Whatever. There's a lot of things we can do. The practical things. Another thing is make a covenant with your eyes. Job 31.1 says that uh, he was um, making a covenant with his eyes that he would not commit something that would be sinful. 
31.1 I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Well, that is so true, isn't it? Determining not to look at anything that would cause sin. We have to be careful. Some people, it may not cause that sin. Some others, you know, we can turn into a legalism, but we don't want to get into situations that we know that can be tempting to us. We need to plant hedges. We need to put up the fences on things that cause us all sorts of problems. Don't be alone with the person of the opposite sex. Don't be alone with them. Yeah, to the point where you know where it could go further than that. Or one who is ministering and they have a lady that uh, they need to counsel. Uh, to go over to her house and counsel would be a no-no. Bring somebody with you like your wife. Somebody else. Don't want to get in that situation. How about going out to lunch with the opposite sex somebody that works with you or is a neighbor or something that's no matter what your intentions are that's going to it can look bad there's so many situations that you know we can get into it takes a lot of wisdom but those kind of things can keep people out of a, a lot of problems there's joy in uh, what God has given us and his blessing another thing that we need to do is practice the very presence that Christ has given us and realize that He is there. He's everywhere. That alone, right there, should be enough for anyone to conquer sin, shouldn't it? How about filling the mind with Scripture? And to be able to use a Scripture at that time that that guide us whenever we're tempted to use that and realize it's coming straight from God. How about accountability with others? Just with other people that you know, you know, and uh, that's a good thing. That's why the body of Christ uh, exists for. Well, how about what we said earlier? We said we're all guilty. We're all guilty. What do we do? Well, just like all the other commands, we found out we're all guilty in all those. We break the Ten Commandments when we really see what it really is. Some can believe that they're finished because they've broken this command. Some could have broken that that very seventh command in in the physical realm. It's not the finish. That's not true at all. Some people can have so much guilt. And the thing is, and and many, uh, or quite a few in this room, have have had divorces for unfortunate reasons and things didn't work out at all. And and you can be holding that guilt and the thing is is that because of forgiveness and because of grace, we don't have to carry that burden of guilt around the rest of our lives. And if we did, we could not live a fruitful life. We can say, Lord, I'm sorry. You get that done with. It's out of the way. You move on. And you realize that God is so good. He is so gracious. And, you know, we, we're all guilty in some manner, some form. Just like the other commandments, we break them. It's not giving us credence to go out and break it because hey, He's a forgiving God. You know, Romans 6 answers that. Shall we just go out and sin all the more that God's grace may abound? But at the same time, isn't God's grace... Is that a little bit of Missouri, isn't there? Isn't, 
Isn't God's grace so good? Is it refreshing to hear about? We see sin that's involved here in this book and how it talked about it and what it does to people, real people, and yet we see that because of Christ, we have hope that is real. There is hope for the guilty adulterer. There is hope for me. Romans 8.1 Oh, I love that verse so much. You guys, many of you already know which verse that is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit who lives within you. There is now no condemnation. It's already been done. We are forgiven. We're not condemned if we are in Jesus Christ. God's love is demonstrated through the person of Christ. He gives us grace. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Even grotesque adultery. Wow. We need to understand the grace the mercy of God in all its glory against the backdrop of sin. So He can take even the worst of sins and put His shining, bright, brilliant, radiant glory on display even in that. And so we say, here's here's what you can take home with you. Jesus bore the penalty for us to the utmost. And we're not condemned. Because of Christ, there is hope for the guilty of which we all are. Amen?